Well, I want to say Happy Mother's Day. And uh, this morning, our LifePoint kids are preparing a gift for every woman in the church. And uh, you can pick one up outside, just outside the front doors following this service. Also, uh, following this service, as pa- uh, Pastor Evan said, is our Meet the Pastor event. Woohoo! And uh, if you're interested in learning a little bit about little old me and, and the life and ministry of our church, uh, if you will join me in the viewing area, which is at the back, right up the stairs, and then to your right, uh, we'll meet up there. And Evan said 20 to 30 minutes. I'm picturing 15 to 20 uh, max. So hope that you will join me up there and we'll have a little time together. Well, this question was raised to me this week. Um, I grew up in the Catholic Church, they said, and memorized the Nicene Creed. It seems much fuller than the Apostles' Creed. What's up? What's the essential difference between them? Well, the essential difference between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, how many of you memorized the Nicene Creed growing up? A number of you. Okay, several of you. Um, the essential difference between these two creeds is that they were really written for entirely different purposes. The Apostles' Creed, as I shared a few weeks ago, was written proactively. It was written in the second century, primarily as a tool for teaching basic Christian doctrine, just kind of really an outline for teaching basic Christian doctrine. But it was also used as a confession of faith for new converts at their baptism. It was a formulation that baptismal, what we call baptismal candidates, would would uh, memorize in advance and uh, and then at the time of their baptism would recite it as their confession of faith. The Nicene Creed, by contrast, is the product of a council of church leaders in the 4th century who gathered in Nicaea, Italy in the year 325 AD uh, to counter the heretical teaching of a very, very influential, uh, charismatic, I would say, in the, in the, in the sense of personality, um, teacher whose name was Arius. And Arius was leading increasing numbers of Christians to believe that Jesus Christ was not, in fact, the second person of the triune Godhead, that he was not the eternal Son of God at all, of one substance with God the Father, but rather that he was, in fact, a created being. And so the Nicene Creed, by contrast with the Apostles' Creed, which was written proactively, the Nicene Creed was written reactively to reassert the biblical belief in the eternal divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ as God the Son, who is of one essence or one substance with God the Father, and to reassert the nature of the three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you read the Nicene Creed through that lens, with that understanding, you you realize the reason for, for what seems like a strained verbiage uh, that was employed to articulate those points, because they were straining to say something that really defies um, comprehension. But uh, but there it is. That's the answer. Would you stand with me as we get into today's message? This is the fifth message in our series, and let's declare our faith together in the words of the Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to call your attention to the line in the creed that reads, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. It may seem odd that on a day like Mother's Day, we are addressing a topic that seems quite somber and more pertinent, perhaps, to a day like Good Friday. I want you to know that I did consider suspending the series just for this week and preaching a sermon just for moms But then I recalled one of the senior pastors under whom I used to serve, who on Mother's Day chose to preach a message aimed at mothers and inevitably on those occasions said something inadvertently that got him into trouble with the women in the church. 
and that's something for which I'd rather not be remembered, uh, though I nevertheless put my foot in my mouth in oh so many ways and on so many occasions. So I have chosen, at least on this Mother's Day, not to venture into those shark-infested waters. Uh, You'll immediately realize that in these 11 brief words, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. We are acknowledging the event that stands at the very center of the Christian faith, as well as at the center of human history. And on that note, by the way, have you noticed the increasing use in education and elsewhere of the acronyms BCE and CE as replacement for the traditional acronyms BC and AD? BCE stands now for Before the Common Era, and CE stands for Common Era. Whereas BC has been the traditional designation, meaning before Christ, and AD, the uh, traditional designation for the Latin Anno Domini, or the year of our Lord. So why this change? Why this change? And the, the simplest and most obvious reason for this, not so subtle and yet very pervasive change, is, I think, to avoid acknowledgement in our increasingly secular society that human history has, in fact, been permanently and irrevocably divided in two by the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to reject the notion that every year since has been the year of our Lord. That is, that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is in sovereign control of human history and that our times are in his hands. So I want to encourage you to have nothing of that. Um, Go ahead and as an act of defiance, rebel against that new formulation. Continue to use B.C. and A.D. freely. Encourage your kids to do that in school as well. Um, And there you go. So, So after all this waggling on the T, Uh, Let's take our first drive, beginning with the first five words in this section, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I've labeled this section of the message, the passion of the Christ. Familiar words. The reason I've done so is that our word passion comes from the Latin passus, which means suffering. And we call the suffering of Jesus his passion. We call his final week leading to the cross passion Weak, And that fact wasn't lost, was it, on Mel Gibson when he made his very graphic movie by this title. I should come as no surprise to anybody that there have been many over the past 2,000 years who have attempted to deny that Jesus ever even really existed and others who have attempted to dismiss the story of his passion as nothing more than a fantasy fable at worst, or a mere morality tale at best. And yet, and yet, the existence of the person of Jesus of Nazareth is one of the most thoroughly attested facts in all of history. There is, in fact, and this sounds surprising as I say it, doesn't it, but there is, in fact, more historical documentation for his existence than for the existence of someone, for example, like Julius Caesar. And regarding his suffering, the the event of his crucifixion is confirmed by reliable historians. Um, For example, and these are just a couple of examples, in the first century A.D., Flavius Josephus, a Jewish Roman historian, wrote these words, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. In the course of describing the emperor Nero's false assignment of blame for the burning of Rome to those who were called Christians, Roman historian Tacitus wrote, Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And when we think about 
the passion or the sufferings of the Christ, it's important to understand that his suffering really began in earnest in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there that the gospel writers describe him as suddenly greatly distressed, sorrowful, troubled, and in agony. Luke records that Jesus prayed that night in the garden, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, this cup of wrath. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him and being in agony, He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then, of course, came Judas Iscariot and a band of soldiers who arrested Jesus, seized and bound him, and then all of his disciples ran away into the darkness. Jesus was taken before Annas, who was the former high priest, Sometimes people get confused. Well, is Annas the high priest or is Caiaphas the high priest? Um, They kind of retained that title like our presidents and vice presidents and and other officers do. But he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the active high priest. But it was in the house of Annas that, that the physical abuse began. Because in reaction to an answer that Jesus gave to Annas, he was slapped across the face by one of the temple officers. And from there, Annas sent him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Mark reports that the chief priests and the whole Jewish ruling council were seeking testimony against Jesus of a nature that was sufficient to have him put to death. But they found none. They brought up witnesses who falsely accused him, but their testimonies conflicted with each other. And finally, Caiaphas, the high priest, stood and asked him directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And then some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. See, by the first part of his answer to Caiaphas, I am, Jesus said, I am the eternal God of Israel. If you review Exodus chapter 3, And uh, Moses encountered with God at the burning bush. He asked him what his name was, and God said, I am. Tell, Tell the Israelites that I am has sent you. In the second part of his answer, Jesus quoted from the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And there Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus asserted his unique identity there before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, as the Son of God and the Son of Man. And for that, he was called a blasphemer and sentenced to death. The next morning, Friday morning, the chief priests, elders, and scribes, and the entire Sanhedrin consulted together, and they bound Jesus and led him away to Pontius Pilate. We don't know a lot about Pontius Pilate. We do know this, that his full name was Marcus Pontius Pilatus. He served the empire as prefect or governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to 36 under the reign of the emperor Tiberius. It's perhaps worth noting that in addition to Jesus, the only two human beings that are named in the Apostles' Creed are Mary his mother, the woman who consented to his birth, and Pontius Pilate, the man who sent him to his death. Pilate has this in common with Judas Iscariot, that he ultimately died by his own hand. 
In Judas' case, it was driven by remorse over his betrayal of Jesus. Pilate's career also ended in significant disrepute, and he committed suicide in obedience to the order of the emperor Caligula. On this occasion, Pilate questioned Jesus, but found no guilt in him. Learning that Jesus was a Galilean, he sent him to Herod because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction. Let Herod bear the burden. Let Herod make the decision. Herod wanted to see Jesus do miracles, but Jesus didn't oblige. Herod questioned him, but Jesus didn't answer. So he and his soldiers simply mocked Jesus, while the chief priests and the scribes off to the side were screaming insults at him. Quite a scene. Herod had him clothed in a royal robe, and sent him back to Pilate. There's an interesting note at this point in the biblical text. It says that Pilate and Herod became friends that day, that they had all, before there had been enmity between them, hostility, anger between them for some reason. We don't know why. But something about what Herod did in sending Jesus back in a royal robe must have pleased Pilate. Pilate informed the Jewish leaders that neither he nor nor Herod had found Jesus guilty of the charges they were leveling. And in fact, three more times, Pilate attempted to free Jesus. Very interesting. He, He had him flogged, tried to reason with the Jews. And by the way, flogging is quite different from scourging. Flogging is more like a whipping, and I'll explain scourging in just a moment. But the Jews would not be dissuaded. He offered them a choice between Barabbas, a murderer and an insurrectionist, a a political prisoner, thinking that they would surely choose Jesus over Barabbas. But instead, inexplicably, they chose Barabbas and screamed for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate washed his hands to symbolically say that Jesus' blood would not be on his hands, but on theirs. And they yelled back, let his blood be on us and on our children. And it was, wasn't it? Finally, realizing that riot conditions were beginning to develop, Pilate sat down in the Bema seat, the seat of judgment, and sentenced Jesus to death. He had him scourged, and sent him to be crucified. Well, what about scourging? Scourging has been described as the crucifixion before the crucifixion. Many prisoners died of scourging before they ever made it to their cross. And it's been said that the Romans had perfected and fine-tuned crucifixion to be the slowest, most excruciatingly painful form of execution known to man. In fact, the word excruciating literally means from the cross. But scourging was nearly equal in terms of its physical devastation, but in a different way. The Romans had devised a thing called a cat of nine tails, a nine leather straps of varying lengths held together by a handle. And at the end of those leather straps were sharpened pieces of bone or stone, or metal. And the action of scourging was not like whipping. The cat of nine tails would be wielded in such a way that the barbs at the end of the strap would dig in to the body of the prisoner. And then the soldier, having impaled the prisoner, would jerk the cat of nine tails either downward ripping down to the legs or sideways, flaying the flesh, ripping muscles and arteries, and in some cases, exposing the spinal cord, even eviscerating vital organs. It was absolutely brutal. And it's no wonder then that Jesus, who was a carpenter by trade, was unable to carry the wooden beam of his own cross outside the city 
to the place of execution. And then came the cross, and arriving at Golgotha, Jesus' hands were nailed to the crossbar. His feet would have been laid across each other, one on top of the other, and one single spike driven through both. And many have the mistaken notion that crucifixion causes the victim to bleed to death. We talk a lot about the blood of Christ. But, but on the contrary, crucifixion brings a slow death by suffocation. The victim over time loses the strength to pull themselves, push themselves up with their impaled hands and feet or in order to allow their lungs to expand and breathe in air. And so they are slowly, torturously asphyxiated until they lose consciousness and die. I was captured this week by a comment made by Alistair Begg who observed that it's interesting to realize that the writers of the Gospels and the Epistles did not provide vivid, graphic, gratuitous, technicolor descriptions of the gory and grisly effects on Jesus of his multiple beatings, his flogging, his scourging, his crucifixion. The New Testament writers didn't go the route of Mel Gibson. And instead, they merely state the fact of all of it and move on. Well, why is that, do you think? I thought it was an interesting observation. It it certainly can't be that they weren't affected by what they saw, which was an atrocity in the extreme. There's certainly nothing wrong with pondering the severity of what Jesus suffered for our salvation. But perhaps the reason that they didn't feel the need to go into greater detail is simply the fact of their total familiarity with the Romans' methods. They'd seen it all before. They were more preoccupied when it was all sorted out with why he suffered and what it all meant for themselves and for all the rest of us. So let's turn now to the prediction of the cross, the prediction of the cross. The Old Testament prophets predicted the crucifixion of Jesus. Think of it, nearly nearly 900 years before Christ, hundreds of years before the Romans invented crucifixion, King David saw with startling accuracy the events of the cross. He recorded them in Psalm 22. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you, but in, in verses 6 to 8, he describes Christ's humiliation as he hung on the cross. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then verses 14 to 15 describe some of his physical sensations. And by the way, those are nearly exact quotes from people at the feet of the foot of the cross. Verses 14 to 15 describe some of his physical sensations. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a clay pot, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And some physicians have observed that all of those sensations would have been the experience of a victim of crucifixion. Verses 16 to 18 detail the scene at the foot of the cross. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Again, it all came to pass. And verse 1 contains Jesus' cry of desolation from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from from the words of my groaning? 900 years before Christ. Just imagine. And then 700 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah 
saw his rejection by his own people. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Isaiah saw Jesus silenced before his accusers. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah saw Jesus' wounds. He saw God's purpose for them. Surely he has borne our griefs carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was, notice the choice of words here, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, I could go on because there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies of varying lengths that are specifically and historically fulfilled in the events and circumstances of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and hundreds more that are fulfilled in his life. And then there are Jesus' own predictions. On three occasions and with increasing detail, Jesus let his disciples know what was soon going to happen. The first occasion followed Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. We read at chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. If Jesus was a mere man, how could he have known that that was going to be the case? This was also the occasion when Peter famously took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him and said, No way, Lord. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What were the things of God on that occasion? They were, the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of sinful men and be crucified and be raised on the third day. Second occasion followed closely upon the miraculous experience on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. I won't take the time to read that, but notice Jesus' words on this occasion. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Rightly so. But notice the consistency. Notice the foreknowledge. The third occasion is in Matthew 20. Notice that he he not only here restates that he will be killed, and then raised on the third day. But this time he tells them clearly in advance the exact manner in which he will suffer and then die. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. It's amazing to me, and I'm sure it's amazing to you as well, that Jesus saw with perfect clarity what awaited him. And yet, the scriptures tell us that Jesus nevertheless set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. Amazing grace. And then let's consider the perplexity of the cross. What do I mean by the perplexity of the cross? For generations, Christians have wrestled with the question of who it was ultimately 
who killed Jesus? The answer is not initially as clear-cut as you might think. Was it the Sanhedrin? They intended it. In Mark 14, we read that the chief priest and the scribes had been seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They condemned him to death, but under Roman law, they lacked the power to carry it out. So they got Pontius Pilate involved. So we might ask, was it Pontius Pilate, in fact, that killed Jesus? He, he didn't find Jesus guilty of any crime deserving of death, but in the end he caved to political pressure from the Jews and sent him to be scourged and crucified. The late J.I. Packer pointed out that Adolf Hitler will be remembered as the man who gassed the Jews. Pontius Pilate will be remembered as the man who killed the king of the Jews. So was it Pilate that bore the ultimate blame? Was it the Jewish people themselves, the crowds that cried out, crucify him and let his blood be on us and on our children? In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter said to the Jews in Jerusalem who heard him that day, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Was it the Jews? Those who perpetrated the Holocaust claimed that it was, used that as a rationale for why the Jews should die. Was it Caiaphas the high priest? I mean, after all, Jesus himself said to Pilate that he who handed me over to you, that would have been Caiaphas, is guilty of the greater sin. And some of us, more reflectively perhaps, would say, well, it was you and I. So was it? Was it you and I? Peter wrote that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. You know, it becomes very obvious, doesn't it, that there's enough culpability to go around. We're all responsible. We're all guilty. And yet there's one more very important person on the list that I haven't named yet, and that's God. Did God, his heavenly Father, kill him? The Bible's answer is a clear and resounding yes. Yes. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter said this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Think of that. Who ultimately killed Jesus, the Son of God? The answer is God, his heavenly Father. In Romans 8.32, Paul wrote that God did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. Think about that. What was the purpose of the cross? Why did Jesus Christ have to die? Some people really reject the whole notion of blood sacrifice. They would say that it had it, it could have been another way. It didn't have to be this way. We have the words of Isaiah in chapter 53, verses 5 and 6 again. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him, on him, the iniquity of us all. Notice the language. What the prophet is asserting is that the suffering and death of Christ was for our transgressions, for our iniquities, not his own. 
His chastisement was for our peace. His wounds were for our healing. Notice, or not surprisingly then, that the apostle Peter quoted directly from Isaiah 53 to make this very point. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, put it this way, that I delivered to you as of first importance, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. John the Apostle wrote, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, let me give you four big theological words that describe the effect of Christ's death for our sins. And the first is that word that's there in 1 John 4.10, propitiation. Propitiation. By his death, Jesus offered the final sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God for all time. The wrath of God. J.I. Packer wrote, We are not wise to play down God's hostility against us sinners. What we should do is magnify our Savior's achievement on our behalf in displacing wrath with peace. What propitiation means is that the wrath of God that, that, that should have been poured out on us, he unleashed fully instead on his son, fully and finally, once and for all. In fact, the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus, the high priest, going into the temple to offer the atoning sacrifice, and as he's in there, and, he, and the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews doesn't put it just exactly this way, but what happens is that the high priest becomes himself the sacrifice. Jesus, the high priest, goes into the temple to offer the sacrifice for our sin, the full and final sacrifice for all of our failure to meet God's righteous standard, takes off his priestly robes and lays himself on the altar. Propitiation is the turning away of God's wrath by a sufficient sacrifice. The second word is expiation. Expiation. E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. It means that by his death... Not only did Jesus satisfy the wrath of God, this this vertical wrath thing, but he removed the guilt of our sins from us. So not only is the wrath of God turned away, but the guilt of our sins is taken away. In his letter to the church in Colossae, Paul wrote that God has forgiven us all of our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He took that record, our rap sheet, our indictment before God, and set it aside, took it away by nailing it to the cross so that all of your guilt, the debt, the record of your guilt, the record of your failure was nailed to the cross. And and, and by his expiation is a part of that atonement, the whole concept of, of atonement. By his expiation, he took your guilt away. And so the writer of Hebrews informs us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist identified Jesus as God's spotless, unblemished, sacrificial lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, takes away, takes away the sin of the world. And the psalmist wrote, 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I don't know about you, I'm getting goosebumps up here. Third word is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Peace with the God whom we've offended, from whom we've been estranged by our sin, from whom we deserve nothing but wrath and judgment. But through the death of Christ, the way has been opened for a restored relationship with our Creator. One of the things I was intending to put into this message, and I just ran out of space, <laughs> was the miraculous things that happened while Jesus hung on the cross. And one of those was that the veil in the temple that separated the, the, the court of the temple from the Holy of Holies was ripped unexplainedly, only by the hand of God, ripped from top to bottom opening the way that we would have access to God. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 5, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, Paul wrote, not counting their trespasses against them. And Paul to the Romans wrote, For if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation a restored relationship with God. Wrath turned away, guilt taken away, reconciled to God. And the fourth word is redemption. Redemption. Redemption means that that Jesus, by his death, rescued us from bondage to sin and death by the payment of a price. And that price was his blood. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood. Jesus said, Mark recorded it, chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He bought us back from the slave block of sin and death. The songwriter wrote, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Finally, the prosperity of the Christ. The prosperity of the Christ. You say, what? Seems a strange word and a strange way of using it, doesn't it? But it's it's the word that the prophet Isaiah used, chapter 53, verse 10. He said that when his soul, that is, the soul of Messiah, Jesus, makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. One of the first things this tells us is that the crucifixion and the tomb were not the end of the story. Isaiah understood that as well by the Holy Spirit. His days are prolonged. He shall see his offspring. But notice that word prosper. See, and this is the true prosperity gospel right here. 
that the will of the Lord that Jesus came to accomplish prospered in his hand. He bore our sin in his own body on the cross and he died in our place. His sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God and by faith in him, we are counted righteous. He is not, nor was he ever, Christ the victim. Instead, he is Christ the victor. And that is why in his final breath, before he gave up his spirit, he cried, it is finished. It is finished. Everything that was necessary for our salvation was accomplished at that moment. Nothing needed to be added. The debt of our sin was paid in full. Jesus had been nailed to the cross at about 9 a.m., so Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead at 3 p.m., unheard of. Sent the centurion in charge to verify the fact which he did. Jesus was dead. A spear thrust into his side confirmed it. And upon his report, Pilate released the body of Jesus to a man named Joseph, whom we up until this point have never heard of, from the Judean town of Arimathea, who in a surprisingly bold move had asked for Jesus' body. Who would do such a thing? Under Roman law, crucifixion of the victim was not the end of the humiliation. See, proper burial for the crucified was not a rite. Bodies of the crucified were simply tossed into the local garbage dump, Gehenna. The gospel tells us several things about Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy man, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And when the Sanhedrin had voted unanimously, it says, to condemn Jesus to death, he he must not have been present because we're told that he did not vote in favor of Jesus' crucifixion. He was waiting for the kingdom of God, and like his friend Nicodemus, He was secretly a disciple of Jesus. And Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus? Nick at night, John 3. Nicodemus assisted Joseph, and they had to move quickly. The Gospels tell us that Jesus died at 3 p.m. By Jewish law, the bodies of the executed had to be taken down from their crosses by 6 p.m., the beginning of the Sabbath. And this was no ordinary Sabbath. This was Passover. Joseph had to obtain permission from Pilate to take down the body. He had to purchase a linen shroud to wrap the body. They had to wash the body and then place it in the tomb. And the tomb in which Joseph and Nicodemus laid him was in fact a freshly cut tomb that Joseph had prepared for his own burial. You know, not not everyone arrives as quickly as others at the place of bold discipleship, do they? But no one can remain a secret disciple indefinitely. Joseph may have missed other opportunities to identify with Christ, to come out as as his follower, but he didn't miss this one. When Mary and Joseph, some 33 years earlier, had taken the baby Jesus to the temple for the very first time, they had encountered an old man named Simeon. You remember him? Who prophesied over Jesus. And the first thing he said was that this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. Both Pontius Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea are memorialized by history for all time for their respective responses to Jesus and for their actions within a mere matter of hours. 
One might say in the words of Simeon that it was the occasion for Pilate falling and Joseph rising. One might also make note that each of them in their own ways had previously attempted to deflect and to delay in their judgments about Jesus but could not ultimately avoid decisive action. Both had to make a choice in time and space, not just in their hearts and minds, but also in their actions, and so must we. What about you? What about you? Have you been delaying, deflecting? Isn't it about time that you decided to transfer your trust to Jesus and to follow him with your life? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. See, the choice is really about your falling or your rising. Your judgment or your redemption. You may be coming early in your life. You may be arriving late. But please come. I pray that you won't miss your moment in time. What the Bible calls the the appointed hour, the day of salvation. Today might be your day. And you stop delaying and you stop deflecting. And you get serious about Jesus Christ. Who did everything that was necessary. With nothing added. For your sins to be forgiven. That you would be reconciled to God. And that you would receive the gift of eternal life. I hope today might be the day, this Mother's Day, 2021. That somewhere behind your mask, you whisper a prayer. Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins. Make me the person you want me to be. Let's pray together. Lord, we're, uh, we're amazed at the cross. We're amazed at your suffering, your passion for us. Your word, the Bible, is screaming it out on every page. And I pray today that we would respond appropriately. For those of us who know you, that we would deepen our discipleship, that we would repent of our sin. For those who don't know you yet, that today might be the day that they say yes to Jesus. They cross the the finish line of faith. That they receive the gift of eternal life. May it be so, Lord, by your Spirit. 